you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. If I had the opportunity to go back in time and choose a different college career path, I would have definitely become a history major. Now, I'm not sure what I would have done for an actual job, but I would have loved spending my time taking as many history classes as possible. So I'm a history buff without the history knowledge. I wish I had. That just gives me the excuse to read more history as much as I can. I especially like to read about controversies over what is real historical fact versus made-up history. Well, in some ways, most of history is open to twisting since we weren't there or we don't know everything that really happened. One such controversy is about our American founding fathers, whether or not they were really born-again Christians or something less than Christian. And according to Encyclopedia Britannica, the question of the religious faith of the Founding Fathers has generated a culture war in the United States. Well, that's right up our alley for season nine of this podcast, isn't it? How have the religious beliefs of our Founding Fathers created a culture war? Well, this is how the Britannica puts it. Scholars trained in research universities have generally argued that the majority of the founders were religious rationalists or Unitarians. Pastors and other writers who identify themselves as evangelicals have claimed not only that most of the founders held orthodox beliefs, but also that some were born-again Christians. Do you hear the culture war? If you believe the Founding Fathers were true Christians, then you have a foundation for a belief that American culture was founded as a Christian culture, as a culture built on God's truth. But if you discover that the Founding Fathers were actually more rationalists or deists or Unitarians, then you undermine the argument for America as a Christian culture. Well, here's more from this encyclopedia entry. The sweeping disagreement over the religious faiths of the founders arises from a question of discrepancy. Did their private beliefs differ from the orthodox teaching of their churches? Most were baptized, listed on church rolls, and frequent attenders of services of Christian worship. But the widespread existence in 18th century America of a school of religious thought called deism complicates the actual beliefs of the founders. Ah, there we have it. While many of us think of early Americans as mainly Christians, there was also a strong deistic culture on the scene. And this is the subject we need to dig down deep into today, the culture of deism, one that has been lurking in the shadows for centuries, one we must confront biblically and resist absorbing as well. If you are new to the podcast, you may be scratching your head about this topic. I thought this was a podcast on counseling issues to help people with their individual marital and family problems. Yes, it is. So what does understanding the culture have to do with that? Well, everything. 
the culture in which we live, the predominant beliefs, language, customs, traditions, all impact how we live, our marriages, our family lives. And so it is with deism, a belief system, a religion that has had a great impact on the culture for centuries and thus on dealing with our problems. So let's begin with a brief definition of deism. And here it is. In general, deism refers to what can be called natural religion, the acceptance of a certain body of religious knowledge that is inborn in every person or that can be acquired by the use of reason and the rejection of religious knowledge when it is acquired through the revelation or the teaching of any church. Well, I said that was brief, but it's kind of an exhausting definition that needs to be broken down into its components. So there are four components in this definition. First, deism is a natural religion, meaning it rejects all things supernatural, or at least that we need the supernatural to understand God. Second, deists believe all people are born with the ability to know God. Third, Human reason is all we need to know God. And finally, deists believe we don't need the Bible, other than maybe some of its moral teaching, or any revelation, or any church to know God. Well, here's another definition that will help us as well. Deism advances a theory that God exists. He created the universe, but does not intervene in the affairs of man. So the God of deism is a transcendent God, but not a personal God. He's a clockmaker God. He made the universe, wound it up, and then let it run by natural laws. That's why the deist doesn't believe in miracles, generally speaking, doesn't need supernatural revelation in really any way, and certainly doesn't need salvation by Jesus dying on the cross. All right, with these definitions in mind, I want to read a few paragraphs from a Wall Street Journal article from 2008 entitled, Deism is Alive and Well in America. Here's a pull quote. When historians refer to some of the founding fathers as deists, it's as they're talking about an extinct philosophy like alchemy or phrenology. Very few Americans go around describing themselves as deists. Well, perhaps that ought to change. A new study reveals that a rapidly growing number of Americans hold the belief system that used to be described as deism. So that should catch our attention as Christians, right? And as biblical counselors, too. How can we counsel people biblically if they refuse to accept the divine revelation of Scripture? But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Back to the article. This brings us to a new study about the rise of nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are Americans who profess no religious affiliation. Trinity College analysts now conclude that nuns make up 15% of the population and that given their rate of rapid growth, their numbers might soon surpass the nation's largest denominations. Remember, this article was in 2008, so we could surmise that they have surpassed the nation's largest denominations already, probably pushing up around 20%. Well, this article continues. The rise of the nuns, again, N-O-N-E-S, 
is usually decried by religious leaders as a sign of secularization or atheism's ascent. But get this, 51% of the nuns say they believe in God. The Trinity folks asked them to describe what kind of God they believed in. 24% say they believe in a higher power, but no personal God. That would mean about 3.6% of Americans could be considered deists, making them more common than Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, or Mormons. Now, that number 3.6% deists might seem small, but that's a lot of Americans. It's a group that both influences our culture and has been influenced by a non-Christian sort of religious culture. Okay, just one last part of the article. I suspect that some modern American deists are actually quite like Jefferson and Franklin. They don't believe in scripture or cotton to organize religion. But in the privacy of their home, they think the distant, aloof God occasionally checks in to listen to their prayers. Okay, now we have come full circle back to at least a couple of our founding fathers. Quite the influence for men that lived hundreds of years ago. Well, now let's get practical here with the impact of the culture of deism on us as Christians today. So here's the first impact. The temptation to be a practical deist in our day-to-day lives. The pure deist doesn't believe in a personal God who intervenes in daily life. He has left humans in charge of everything. Certainly, we know that non-Christians think this way, with no thought given to God, even if they believe in some sort of God. But can you and I, as Christians, actually be practical deists, living our lives this way? Well, we are certainly practical deists if we rarely pray about much of anything. Sure, we give thanks at mealtimes or pray for sick people, but do we pray about the daily decisions we make? Do we ask God to give us wisdom so we can follow his will? Here's another way to think about it. Are we living in our own strength or dependent on the power of God in our lives? A culture of deism promotes rugged individualism, independence, seeing any sort of dependence as weakness, even dependence on God. We can imbibe this thinking as well, especially in America, where we live to be free and independent, to do what we want to do, not what someone else tells us to do. But the Christian is to be dependent on an active Holy Spirit living within us. God's Word tells us to walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, not walking independently of Him. Christian maturity is not about independence and self-sufficiency. It's about seeing our own sin, our need for Jesus, our need for the grace of God. It is so easy to slip into a deistic mindset, especially when we have been Christians for some time. Or when the cares of this world overwhelm us. Or when we get comfortable and enjoy a life of ease and wealth. Remember that Even actual deists pray once in a while, especially when things are really tough. Can we do the same thing as Bible-believing, born-again Christians? Can we put God so much out of our minds that we just consult Him on the big things in life? When we know that God does answer prayer, that He is sovereign and running His world, that He does intervene in the affairs of men, why wouldn't we pray continually like He tells us to? And number two, 
the temptation to not read all the Bible. As we mentioned earlier, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Did you know that he wrote his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible? Here's how Wikipedia describes it. The life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible, is one of two religious works constructed by Thomas Jefferson. The first, the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, was completed in 1804, but no copies exist today. The second, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, was completed in 1820 by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue numerous sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. Jefferson's condensed composition excludes all miracles by Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections of the four Gospels that contain the resurrection and most other miracles, and passages that portray Jesus as divine. So you heard that. Jefferson literally cut and pasted together pieces of the actual Bible to make his own Bible. This is every person's deepest, darkest fantasy to make their own Bible that confirms to what they think is true, leaving out all the things they don't like. You heard that he left out all the miracles of Jesus, anything supernatural, turning his Bible into the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you may be thinking, how arrogant. I would never cut out pieces of the Bible. But do we do this practically by how we read the Bible? Do you read all the Bible over and over again or just the parts you enjoy, like a psalm of the day or Paul's epistles or the Gospels? If all Scripture is inspired by God and all Scripture is useful for our training, correction, discipleship, Why aren't we regularly reading all of it? Certainly, some parts of the Bible are harder to read or understand than others. Some seem more applicable while others do not. So we are getting perilously close to drinking in the culture of the deists, aren't we? Of picking and choosing what interests us the most about the Bible. Of not believing that all Scripture is powerful to change our hearts and minds that all of it is necessary for our relationship with God. So let me ask you, how well-worn and well-read is your Bible? Now we get to the third temptation of deism, the temptation to not read the Bible regularly. Not only do deists not read particular parts of the Bible or believe particular parts of the Bible, the Bible is just not central to their lives. If you think you can know God by your own internal reason, then why do you need the Bible anyway? A survey in 2021 showed that just 11% of Americans read the Bible daily. Listen to that one more time. A survey in 2021 showed that just 11% of Americans read their Bible regularly or daily. Well, according to the details of that survey, Bible readership varies across each demographic, with millennials most likely to have never read the Bible, whereas the most frequent readers were those aged over 70 years old. Yes, you heard it. Thank you, 70-year-old and plus, for reading your Bible. 
But again, let that sink in for a moment. The millennials, those aged 27 to 40, are most likely to never have read the Bible at all. What sort of Christians will millennials be if they never read the Bible? Never looking to God's word to grow in their faith. Never looking to the Bible to live their lives. Well, here's more from the research. Although figures show that fewer people are reading the Bible, there's still a genuine desire to read the Bible amongst the American population, with 56% of those asked in 2019 expressing a wish to read it. Now, that's a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Or does it reflect the influence of a deistic culture, a culture that is built on a lot of emotion? So I feel like I need to read the Bible regularly, but I don't actually have the will to do it. I choose not to do it. So the Bible becomes something of interest, but not something of importance. Well, here's one last quote from this research. However, a significant proportion of the U.S. population consider their belief in God to be compatible with the representation in the Bible. Now, that's pretty laughable. How can so many Americans think they believe in the God of the Bible if they hardly ever have read the Bible? Clearly, they believe in a God who they think is in the Bible, that they have created with their own reason. But it gets worse. A recent LifeWay study found that only 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church say they read the Bible regularly. Evangelical Protestants fared a little better, but not much. Only 36% of them read the Bible regularly. Al Mohler puts it succinctly, the scandal of biblical illiteracy is our problem. Not the liberals' problem, not the non-Christian problem. It's our problem as Bible-believing Christians. What will happen to the next generation if their parents don't read the Bible regularly? And then the fourth temptation of deism, the temptation not to see the Bible as applicable to life. It's one thing to regularly read the Bible, but what if you believe it has little to say to how I live each day? Again, deists use reason to understand God, and so they also use reason to live their life. Now, certainly God has given us minds to think, and as Christians, we have renewed minds to be able to walk in wisdom. But the mind apart from Scripture denies the need for God to reveal himself by his word. Denying that the Bible applies to my life ends up in the belief that I will live my own way or by some other authority. The challenge in counseling others biblically is that even Christians refuse to apply what the Bible teaches in its principles and its outright commands. So, for example, when the Bible teaches submission of wife to husband, that isn't applicable today because fill-in-the-blank reasons. Or when the Bible teaches parents to discipline their children, to use the rod, to confront sin, that's all cruel to children. It will tear down their self-esteem. It doesn't apply today. Or when the Bible says, love our enemies, that doesn't apply to my enemy. I need to build a boundary and protect myself from that enemy. Or when the Bible teaches that greed, gluttony, gossip are all sins, we don't see that as applicable in our situation. 
how will we be convicted by Scripture if we don't see it as applying to me or applying to anyone today? A deistic culture will encourage Christians to read the Bible devotionally, but to not seriously apply it to life, to marriage, to parenting, to community, to politics, to education, to anything in this human life. Again, what happens when a generation doesn't know Scripture, and even if it knows some of the major stories of the Bible, it doesn't see it as applicable to real life? The fifth temptation of Deism is the temptation not to believe in miracles. Remember that Thomas Jefferson removed all of Jesus' miracles from his Bible. Why did he do that? Because the deist rejects the supernatural. Miracles just don't happen. They can't happen. Why? Because a miracle is God intervening in his world, and they don't believe that God intervenes in the world. In the mind of the deist, God sets up natural laws, again, winds the clock, if you will, and then just sets everything in motion. So Jesus walking on water is impossible. Healing the sick in an immediate way never happens. Multiplying loaves and fishes, yeah, right. Now, if I'm sounding the alarm about deism, what do we do with this research? A recent survey actually says that 80% of Americans do believe in miracles. What? 80%? How can that be? Well, first, I would like to know if they believe that the one true God does these miracles, that miracles occur because of the intervention of an all-powerful God. My guess is that most Americans believe that miracles come from all sorts of places and all sorts of people from incredible humans, or from the universe, or from some sort of pantheistic force, or from a multiplex of gods. Most of all, most people probably just really want there to be miracles. They don't care where they come from as long as they come into their lives when they need them. So many people don't pray for a miracle, they just wish for a miracle. They cross their fingers for a miracle. They stare into the heavens for a miracle. This is quite different than trusting in an all-powerful, all-loving God, much different than believing in Jesus Christ. Many of the same people who believe in miracles don't believe that Jesus performed miracles. So as Christians, we must resist the temptation to dismiss the supernatural, to be grounded only in the natural, to not believe in miracles. The same God of the Bible still intervenes every day. He is sovereign over the workings of this world. And of course, the ultimate miracle is that God would send his son to die for our sins, to intervene in lives that were all heading to hell. Salvation is the miracle of all. And then the sixth temptation, the temptation to trust the science, to trust in reason. Deism came into its own as modern science came into being during the Enlightenment period. Even though most scientists were Christians at that time, over the decades, it became easy to be more and more reliant on the science, on the research, on reason, rather than on scripture. Of course, evolution had a lot to do with that as well. So where are we today when it comes to science? There's certainly a great willingness to trust science, to believe we can study and research and solve any problem in this world. 
Now, Christians should certainly be thankful for all true science, for research and investigation that leads to truth. But the problem is that science has become a mixture of true and false, motivated by biases and politics against God and against his word. And the related problem that many people are unable or unwilling to be discerning, to see the difference between true science and junk science. As we learned at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, science has become more and more politicized with an agenda to push particular policies. Just the fact that so many people, including so many Christians, accept all psychology as science instead of recognizing it as a mixture of religion and opinion and some science. When we just trust the science, when we trust reason, we fail to see the sinfulness and weakness and the evil heart of man. We end up absorbing deism when we pay more attention to what seems reasonable instead of being willing to put our faith in the Lord. Yes, our faith informs our reason, but we must have our reason submitted to the word of God. Well, just a couple more things for us to pay attention to when it comes to the culture of deism. And that is, seventh, the temptation to not be teachable. Hopefully, you have figured out at the heart of the deist is the usual suspect, human pride. To be a deist, you have to believe your reason is exceptional and impeccable. You have to think very highly of your thinking. Remember that another hallmark of deism is the distrust of organized religion, of the church, of any dogma. So they are essentially unteachable, unwilling to believe that Christians throughout the centuries have anything important to teach them. Can we as Christians drink in this aspect of deism ourselves? Even as we sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word week after week, year after year, can we let it bounce off our heads and our hearts? Our sinful hearts certainly become proud, stubborn, and unteachable. My wife often rebukes me with how unteachable I can be in my own marriage. We must all be careful that we aren't believing Satan's lies, that we have it all figured out, or that we are rarely or ever wrong. A mark of Christian maturity is the willingness to be teachable, even though we have learned a lot already over our lifetimes. Let us not be foolish like the deists but wise to know our need to learn from the Lord, his word, his spirit, his instruments in our lives. And finally, the temptation to see biblical counseling as an inferior form of counseling. Now, that sounds pretty defensive, doesn't it? And a bit insecure of me. But seriously, a deistic culture that elevates reason and science as the ultimate wisdom will necessarily reject biblical counseling. It dismisses any idea that Scripture speaks authoritatively to mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational problems. It will just pat the biblical counselor on the head and say it can help with minor problems of this life, a struggle with faith, or something of that kind. But the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the mental health expert knows so much more than the biblical counselor about the human being. They understand life better. They know how to treat the hardest of mental illnesses. 
Do many Bible-believing Christians also hold this view? Definitely. That's why so many Christians see a background in psychology as so much more important than a right theology or a vital understanding of God's Word. Today, even many Christian counselors trust the science of psychology or only trust therapies and treatments that have been well-researched. Even if those researchers and scientists and theorists have no theological framework and are even hostile to Christianity. Now, can God use all sorts of people, even non-believers, to help with our problems? Certainly. But can anyone but Christians teach the gospel? Can anyone but Christians share the truth of Scripture and point people to Christ? Nope. And so we must push back against a deistic culture by embracing biblical counseling, by desiring to be instructed and helped by those who are applying God's truth to life, by listening to those who speak the truth to us in love. But if we feel like there's always better wisdom out there that can be found beyond God's word, how are we any different than the deists? Truth is certainly found by non-Christians, even if they don't acknowledge or know the giver of that truth. But who better to share truth than the Christian who points to Christ, who is filled with the spirit of truth and who opens the scripture to us? We need to continue to promote biblical counseling to the church, to Christians. We need to continue to equip the saints as biblical counselors. We must not be ashamed thinking that we don't know near as much as the mental health experts. In the end, as I've said repeatedly on this podcast, what good is it to help people with their problems if they just end up in hell? We must always have a gospel perspective, an eternal perspective to care for people well. Let me end this episode with a quote from a person who actually claims to be a deist as well as a Christian. He writes, The point of contact with God is that our ability to discern the good is a unique human trait given to us by God in our souls or our conscience. Reason used to know the good is the result of God showing us the good through the rational faculties God has implanted in all people. Again, you hear from this Christian deist the elevation of human reason, making all people equally able to know God. But the truth is that you didn't come to know God because he gave you a good mind and good reason to know him. You know God because he revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ by his spirit. So in the end, deism rejects Jesus as Savior, looking to our own reason and our own morality to save us. We will resist the deistic culture as we continue to embrace Jesus Christ, embrace God's word, putting our faith in God rather than in ourselves. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.